Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. All witnesses, persons of interest, and or suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. One more day is a day too long. This is Method and Madness, episode 56, Murdered. Kristen O'Connell, Part 1. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. Kristen stepped outside the trailer into the hot, humid summer night, closing the door behind her. She headed toward the road. It was dark around 11.30 p.m. with only the soft, glowing light from nearby homes guiding her way and a blanket of stars above. As the grass met the roadway, Kristen placed a bare foot onto the pavement. There was no smooth white sidewalk, and the pebbles were rough under her feet as she walked on the side of Route 139 in the rural town of Ovid, New York. She was dressed in a red and white striped sleeveless sweater and white capri pants. To her right, a few modest houses. To her left, a cornfield. The headlights from oncoming traffic would momentarily blind her as they passed by. It wasn't a heavily trafficked road. Most of the passerby at that time of night were driving home from work at the nearby Army Depot or from Willard Asylum. Some were headed to the local bar for a nightcap. A few witnesses saw the 20-year-old woman walking on the side of the road. She didn't appear to be in distress. Sometime around or a little after midnight, Kristen was seen headed back in the direction from which she came, headed back toward the village, back toward the trailer. But Kristen never made it back. It's as if she was plucked from the side of that road, from the darkness, and just vanished. At least one person heard what they described as a blood-curdling scream coming from near that cornfield that very night. Two days later, Kristen was found in that cornfield adjacent to the very road she had walked on the night of August 14, 1985. She was naked, with multiple stab wounds. She'd put up quite a fight, but was no match for who she came across that night. Let's dive in. I vowed that after she was found there, that I would never rest, never, until I find out who did this to her. 
and who killed her. Kristen O'Connell was brutally murdered in the summer of 1985 while visiting a friend out of town. In the more than 37 years since, her mother has fought for justice. In this special miniseries, we'll explore Kristen's story and her case. Who was she and what brought her to a rural town 1,000 miles from home? Who were the last people to see her alive? And who would want her dead? It's believed that the key to solving Kristen's murder is within reach, but it's been a long and complicated path. What were the circumstances that led to her being pursued and murdered? Why haven't the people who were with her before she was killed come forward with information? What secrets is the tiny town of Ovid, New York, hiding? We're going to attempt to answer some of these questions while also being respectful of the fact that the case is still considered an open investigation. This is Kristen's story. She was born during a Wisconsin winter. Phyllis and Michael O'Connell adored the baby girl that they welcomed into the world on January 12th, 1965. They named her Kristen Marie. Five years later, a baby boy, Kyle, came along. The O'Connell family was complete. They attended church regularly, and Kristen was described by those that loved her as an old soul, someone easy to talk to and full of love. She had a strong sense of independence about her. She knew who she was and was never afraid to stand up for herself or for the underdog. Today, you'll get to know Kristen and hear from those that loved her. You'll also hear about a trip she took to the Sunshine State during her sophomore year of college, and that trip would ultimately alter Kristen's trajectory, leading to a second trip that would end in her murder. And you'll hear about a phone call Kristen made hours before she died and how she was planning on coming home sooner than expected. Here's Kristen's mom, Phyllis O'Connell. She was just a real sweetheart. Everybody loved Kristen. She was always trying to help people. And, and you know, she just, she had no concept of time when she was little. We lived in Wausau, Wisconsin, and I can tell you a little bit about her. I would send her to school. We lived two blocks from school. I would watch her go down one block, then she had to turn the corner and go one more block. And her first year there, it was kindergarten, and and I, I go for conference, and the teacher says to me, oh, Kristen is just such a lovely child, but you know, I wish you would send her on time to school every day. And I said, what do you mean on time? I said, I I send her always on time. And I watch her walk that block and turn the corner. And she said, well, she's late every day. So I thought, what in the world? So Kristen came home from school and I said, Kristen, I said, what do you do when you turn the corner there to go to school in the morning? Well, she said, I, there's a really nice lady that lives down there. And, and she always has me in 
and we have cookies and milk. And I said, every morning you do this? Oh, yeah, every morning. I said, well, you know, you can't do this. You're supposed to be in school. You can't stop and have cookies, <laughs> you know. Oh, I mean, she was very <laughs> oblivious of, oh, I had to be there on time, and this is where I'm supposed to go and be. So this is this was her. She was always visiting with people and talking to people. So, you know, that's kind of who she was when she was even little. And as, you know, she got older and, and you know, people would comment what a lovely girl she was. Kristen was also very close with Phyllis's younger sister, Barb. Here, Barb talks about her niece. She loved, loved to laugh, and it was, her laugh was contagious. I mean, when she laughed, everybody kind of joined in and, and just, she would just sit down and talk about anything and everything and wasn't in a hurry as far as she really kind of listened to people and, you know, gave her um, thoughts about different subjects and things like that. And when she was growing up in her early teens, <clears throat> she loved the lake cabin and loved to have her friends up there and, and have a good time. Um, and when she was probably about 13, she loved John Denver and John Denver was coming to Minneapolis and I got tickets for she and I to go. And one of her favorite songs was Annie's song, which she always played at home and things like that. So we went to the concert and <clears throat> she even kept the ticket stub and put it in her album. Uh, and it's still there to this day. Kristen had a lust for life, loved the people in her life, including her dog. But then there was Kristen's pride and joy. Here again is Phyllis. Kristen loved horses. That was her. She was just mad about horses. Had pictures of horses and always wanted a horse. But we had a neighbor when we lived in Eden Prairie who had a horse. She lived across the street and she was going to college. And she boarded the horse maybe six, seven blocks from us on a on a farm that still existed. And Kristen would go there after school and visit the horses and visit this horse. And she just adored this horse. And but she would come home and she'd have hives. So she was allergic to them. But every day she would go. And she would feed a horse or pet a horse, and it got better. So she desensitized herself. So the neighbor said, we can't keep this horse now that our daughter's going to college. Is it possible that you would want to keep this horse? And so Kristen's parents talked it over, and it was a deal. Kristen was responsible for taking care of the horse. It was a wild one. And she would ride bareback and even give the neighborhood kids rides. The family had a cabin up on Farm Island Lake in Aiken, Minnesota. And that's where Kristen met one of her best friends, Shannon. Shannon's family had a cabin next door. And the two girls became fast friends. She was so bright. And I don't just mean intellectually. Everything about her was bright. Her eyes, the way she talked the way 
she looked at things, you know. I was a cynical person. Eh, still am, I guess, you know. And she just was completely opposite of that. If she wanted to be your friend, she didn't care if you didn't want to be her friend. She'd make you her friend, <laughs> you know, because she was just impossible not to like. She was beautiful. She had long brown hair, you know, beautiful eyes, just a, an amazing way about her. But like I said, it didn't matter if you didn't want to be her friend, you would end up being her friend because you just couldn't resist how she was. The years go by quickly, and before the O'Connell family knew it, it was time to check out colleges. After her graduation from high school in Burnsville, Minnesota, Kristen headed off to the University of Wisconsin-Stout in Menominee, which was close to the O'Connell home, a little over an hour's drive. During her freshman year, she came home every weekend to spend time with her family. She missed them while attending classes during the week. Kristen was studying hotel and restaurant management and had aspirations of getting her degree and heading to paradise to live and work in Hawaii, perfect for a girl who loved people and the outdoors. But she never got that chance. While a freshman in college, Kristen expressed interest in a certain ritual, spring break, a time for college students to get away, hit the beaches, meet new people, her parents were protective, and when she broached the subject with them, they were hesitant and ultimately said, not this year, but definitely next. Sophomore year came around and Kristen began her plans to head to warmer climates and leave Minnesota and Wisconsin behind for a week. In 1985, Fort Lauderdale, Florida was the place to be for spring breakers, with more than 370,000 students traveling there to indulge in the beach and party lifestyle. Earning its nickname Fort Lickerdale, soon enough students would be told they weren't welcome there, and Daytona Beach and Cancun would take over as the spring break destinations. Phyllis and Mike O'Connell were well aware of Fort Lauderdale's reputation and had a different beach destination in mind for Kristen. They suggested Sanibel Captiva. Located about 30 miles off the coast of Fort Myers, Florida, Sanibel and Captiva are two islands offering up plenty to do for visitors each year in a more low-key setting. It was also an area that was convenient for smuggling by the so-called cocaine cowboys of the 70s and 80s. Kristen and her friend Sue packed their bags and drove down there in March 1985. It was the underbelly of the area wasn't good at all. And, of course, we knew nothing about that. So that particular area, being that it stuck out on a peninsula there, was a perfect place to run drugs through. And... I've come to find out that, of course, there were a lot of drugs going through that area and through that Captiva from various kids that worked down there. So <clears throat> that was not the best 
place for Kristen. She was very naive, you know, and had no clue, wasn't into drugs or any of that, and would not have ever, you know, gotten involved in any of that. So she and Sue went there on spring break. That's where she met Jim Vermeersh. Jim Vermeersh, 18 years old, was working at the resort down in Captiva. He was from a small town in New York State, Ovid, in the Finger Lakes area. Up there, he worked at a cafe and vineyard. So Jim had approached Kristen one night, sort of singled her out. He was kind of shy, polite, and the two hit it off. They spent some time together, and the next morning, Kristen was packing up to head home. Jim met up with her and walked her out to say goodbye, and Kristen took a picture of him in front of her car. They promised to keep in touch. Here is Kristen's friend, Shannon. She was like, oh, my God, this guy is so cute. He's so nice. He's... And she kept talking about his hair. Oh, he's got such nice hair. He's got such nice hair. And I'm like, what? And, uh, yeah, she, she talked about him, and she was excited. And she had said, you know, oh, we plan on meeting up again. And, you know, and you're kind of like, everybody's kind of like, yeah, 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 whatever. You know, just kind of like if you do meet someone out on a trip somewhere, oh, yeah, we'll keep in contact kind of thing. You know, I didn't really think anything would, you know, come of it. Back home in the Midwest, Kristen returned to school and began her long-distance friendship with Jim Vermeersh. The two wrote each other letters and occasionally spoke on the phone. By all accounts, Kristen was smitten. She finished her sophomore year at Stout and that summer, on August 1st, was invited by Jim to come visit him at his home in Ovid, New York, where he lived with his parents. Kristen, being so close with her family, sat down with her parents to discuss the invitation. After some convincing, Phyllis told her that she'd be supportive of the trip under a few conditions. After all, her only daughter was going to be traveling to another state to visit a guy she didn't know that well and that the family didn't know at all. But Kristen was an adult, almost 21, and responsible, level-headed, respectful. Her parents trusted her implicitly. And so, the conditions were as follows. Kristen would bring her friend and roommate, Sue, with her on the trip. She'd raise her own money for the cost of the plane ticket, and she'd fly into Boston and get picked up by a trusted friend of the family, who would then drive her to go meet Jim Vermeersh. And finally, Kristen had to check in with her mom daily. And they were only going to be gone a week, and they were, you know, coming back. So then last minute, Sue decides she's going to paint their room for her, their junior year in college. And so she doesn't go. So now Kristen's going on her own. So we decided to, my husband had a business associate up in that area. He called him and asked if he would pick her up in Boston. And then, you know, show her around and then drive her up into the Ovid area. And he agreed to do that. So we felt pretty comfortable. We didn't want her flying into New York City in the 80s. There was a lot of stuff going on in New York City, and we didn't feel safe for a young girl to travel up into that area. So we, but we 
had no clue that, hey, we'd have any problem up in the upstate regions. Very much looks like Minnesota in the suburbs of Minnesota. Only that's not what was really going on in the in that area. So many things going on that was unbelievable. So I we allowed her to he took her up there and then Jim Vermeesh was supposed to pick her up and then they were supposed to stay at Jim Vermeesh's house. Last minute he calls her and says Oh, I moved out. I moved into this trailer with my friend and we're not you're not staying at my parents' house. So she chose to tell me and I said, well, she said I know you're not going to like this. She said, you're right, I don't like this. But I said I I trust you. So, it was a slight change of plans, but Kristen was optimistic. She wanted to get to know Jim better. Here, Kristen's friend Shannon reflects on the last time she saw her friend. We sat and visited for a little bit, and she said, well, I can't see long. I got to go finish packing, and I hugged her, and I said, have fun. Be careful. And she said, I will, and she was just glowing. You know, she was so excited to go and see this guy. And... uh I said, well, call me as soon as you get back and we'll get together and talk about it. She's like, okay. She's like, love you. And she, as, as she's driving her way, she looks back and her hair is blowing. She's got her arm up in the window. I can, or up because she doesn't have the top on the car. And she's looking back. She's like, love you. And that's the image I have burned in my brain. And, uh, So that was the last time I saw her, was the day before she left. Kristen's Aunt Barb also reflects on this time. I remember I was there that Saturday before she left. And she was excited about going and, you know, picking out clothes. And, you know, I was helping her, too, with that. And just, you know, was just really excited about going on her, her, her big trip. I think she was just excited about, you know, meeting this person and wanting to go and, you know, get to maybe know him a little bit better. Kristen flew into Boston and met up with that family friend, Bill, on Sunday, August 11th. Bill took her to dinner, and then they drove to Syracuse to meet up with Jim Vermeersh. There at a shopping mall, Jim and his friend, David Chamberlain, picked Kristen up and drove her the 60 miles over to Ovid. She checked in with her mother to tell her she was safe. But something happened while Kristen was visiting, something that changed her plans from staying for the week to almost immediately wanting to come home. And that may be a puzzle, figuring out what happened. That will be a theme that runs throughout this miniseries. Through word of mouth from people living in Ovid at the time, Jim Vermeers didn't exactly give Kristen the warm welcome she was surely expecting after months of chatting, writing, and accepting an invitation to visit. It was rumored that Jim actually had a girlfriend and paid little attention to Kristen in the short time she was there. So why even bother inviting her to travel all that way? I know, we'll get to that. What we know is that Kristen went with Jim 
and some of his friends that Wednesday, August 14th, to the lake to do some swimming. Afterward, they stopped off and shot some pool and then picked up sandwiches before returning to the trailer. The trailer Jim was staying at was right next to The Golden Buck, a bar and restaurant popular with the locals. If the town of Ovid was the setting for a fictional murder mystery, the Golden Buck would be one of the main characters. That Wednesday afternoon, the payphone on the wall of the Buck was free, and so Kristen made the long-distance call home. Standing there, the handset pressed against her cheek, she heard her mom's voice on the other end and delivered the news that her plans had changed. It would be the last time Phyllis would talk to her beloved daughter. When she called me the second time, I was busy at work, and she was kind of hemming on, and she said, I've decided to come home. I said, really? Well, what's, what's the matter? Aren't you having a good time or what? No, well, I, I, she said, oh, it's all right. But, but I am going to come home early. And that was it. And I could tell by the apprehension in her voice something was up. But she, you know, wasn't going to tell me, obviously. She didn't want to worry me. So that was the last time I talked to her. Are you a true crime advocate? passionate about uncovering the truth and bringing justice to victims, you can immerse yourself in an unforgettable experience at this year's True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival, which takes place in Austin, Texas, August 25th to 27th, 2023. I attended last year, and let me tell you, this is a fantastic event that features panel discussions, workshops, and live podcasts with a special focus on ethics and advocacy in the true crime sphere. And if the paranormal and spooky are your thing, you'll get plenty of that too. To get tickets, go to truecrimepodcastfestival.com and join us in Austin. Don't miss out on the chance to connect with other advocates and take your passion for true crime and the paranormal to the next level. Use the code METHOD for 15% off your ticket and spend the weekend with some very special guests. Julie Murray, sister of missing woman Maura Murray, Tara Newell of the Dirty John series, and Collier Landry. That's truecrimepodcastfestival.com. Hope to see you there. Before the break, we talked about Kristen making that call to her mom. It was during that conversation that Kristen told her mom something else. It was in regards to an incident Kristen had heard about on spring break when she witnessed a bartender report to work. Here, Phyllis talks about that event that occurred in Florida months earlier. This bartender came rushing in, and he said uh, he was just visibly shaken all over. He, He was supposed to go on duty. He couldn't even go on duty. He said, oh, my God, I hit a kid on a bike. Now, we're saying, what? He hit a kid on a bike. And Kristen and Sue both said, 
well, is the kid all right? What happened? You know, and he just clammed up and he couldn't even go on his shift. Now, when she travels all the way up to over New York at the Golden Buck, who is the bartender? That's right. This bartender from spring break was standing just a few feet away from Kristen. Was this the world's greatest coincidence? A random bartender she remembered from five months earlier and 1,400 miles away was now working at a bar in a remote location in upstate New York. We're going to come back to that and the possible significance of it in the next episode. That night, Jim Vermeers had some friends over at the trailer. There was some drinking, partying, and a little after 11 p.m., Jim took off on his motorcycle to go pick up a pizza. It was around this time that his friends say Kristen decided to go for a walk to clear her head. She was known to take walks and stargaze. She left the trailer with no purse and no shoes. We know that Kristen then walked down the poorly lit road of Route 139 and was seen by motorists. She was headed west walking the shoulder on the north side of the road. At some point, she turned and headed back toward the area of Jim's trailer. An Ovid resident, Ed McDonald, told police that he had been driving home from his job at the nearby Seneca Army Depot when he saw a young woman walking on the side of Route 139. He also saw a green or blue car pull up next to her. Behind it was another car. After midnight, witnesses said they saw two men in their 20s walking about 50 yards behind Kristen. The following day was Thursday, and back home in Minnesota, Kristen's father, Michael, received a phone call in the early afternoon, a call that is every parent's worst nightmare. I think it was like in the late afternoon, I got this call from my brother-in-law, Mike. And he said that, you know, Kristen's, Kristen is missing. And he said, I just got a call from the New York State Police. And they um, said that Kristen is missing. Um, she went on a walk last seen without any shoes and without a purse. And when he told me this, he he called me because he told me right away after he hung up with the police because Phyllis wasn't home. And um, he just called me and, and would, t you know, talk about things occasionally. But when he called me and he told me this, I was like in the pit of my stomach. I knew something was wrong. And I tried to <clears throat> stay light of it. You know, but, you know, it was hard, but I did when I was talking to Mike. And I said, well, maybe, you know, something she just got lost or something, you know, on her walk. So I was, you know, not even believing this, that what I was hearing. Michael jumped on a plane and headed to New York to help with the search. Phyllis stayed home in case a phone call came in. At least 13 hours had passed before anyone had reported that Kristen hadn't returned. When questioned about the events from the night before, 
Jim told the police that he'd had friends over, about seven or eight of them, and they'd been drinking. Around 11.15 p.m., he left to go into town and pick up a pizza, and when he returned, Kristen was gone. It was quickly established by police that Kristen was not the type to up and leave town without saying anything. This was completely out of character. Plus, all her belongings were still in that trailer. The patrol officers, Trooper Kimberly Smith, Trooper Susan Allen, and Sergeant Donald Swain, were on night duty. They had a bad feeling about the circumstances of this disappearance. Sergeant Swain called all of the local hospitals, from Ithaca to Waterloo, Geneva to Clifton Springs. They called other law enforcement agencies and rescue squads, they looked into bus stations, local universities like Cornell. Nothing turned up. Nobody had seen Kristen. A dozen state troopers conducted a ground search and interviewed neighbors and witnesses. A few people came forward and said they'd seen a girl walking on the side of the road the night before. They'd also seen a car stopped next to her. And some reported seeing a car, possibly the same one, doing a U-turn in an abandoned gas station and heading back toward where Kristen had been walking. By the following day, Friday, about 90 people were involved in the search for Kristen, police and firefighters. Around 5.10 p.m., while searching that 300-acre cornfield on Route 139 in Ovid, a firefighter called out that he had found her. Kristen's body was just 96 feet from the road and just 1,200 feet from the trailer where she'd been staying. She was naked, lying on her back, her legs spread apart with a gaping laceration to her neck and several noticeable stab wounds to her chest as well as to her elbow. She had several abrasions on her body that had apparently been inflicted on her while she was still alive. She was pronounced dead on the scene at 545. The red and white sleeveless sweater she'd worn two nights ago was crumpled on top of her stomach and her white capri pants were on the ground next to her left foot. Her underwear was either ripped or cut in two. Near her left foot was one portion of it, the other was underneath her body. Kristen's autopsy was performed by coroner Michael McLaughlin, whose findings were that the immediate cause of death was exsanguination or severe loss of blood due to an incised wound in the neck. The manner of death was homicide and had most likely occurred just after midnight, early August 15th. There were no drugs or alcohol detected in her system. Kristen's dad had arrived in town and was led to the cornfield where he saw her body. He had to make the call to his wife that their daughter was gone. Here again is Barbara Bear. He he called around five o'clock or late in the afternoon and there was a bunch of people over, friends, family, and the priest came over from the church and um, they had, um, he had called me first and talked to me and he told me that they found her and he was just all crying and whatever. And I, I tried to hold it together. <laughs> until he talked to Phyllis. And so it was not easy for sure. And um, she she was hysterical. So 
that is just a nightmare of, you know, you think it, it happens to other families, you never would think it would happen, you know, to us. It was hard to believe that. Back in Ovid, the crime scene was being secured. Now, evidence often tells a story. So what did it say? The area in and around Ovid had scattered thunderstorms that week, and it had rained heavily the night before. Kristen's body was soaked, not ideal for collecting evidence. Near the roadway, Police recovered a white pillowcase, and inside, there were red fibers, consistent with Kristen's sweater. Based on the position of the body and that Kristen's clothes were removed, the possibility of sexual assault was likely. But the police don't think she was sexually assaulted. The coroner's report said she hadn't been, but was amended later to say inconclusive. Major Richard Tonzi of the state police said at the time, quote, The apparent intentions may have been a sexual attack, but it may not have taken place, eventually ending instead with murder. Police thought it was possible, based on Kristen's injuries, that there may have been more than one killer, that one perpetrator may have held Kristen down, pressing their knees onto her shoulders, while another stabbed her. She had clearly put up a fight. One fingernail was broken off, and fingernail clippings were collected and put into evidence. Additionally, the Monroe County Medical Examiner's Office took and secured both vaginal and rectal slides. Hairs were located on Kristen's body, including at least one human hair with the root intact. She was wearing jewelry, two rings, and earrings, so touch DNA may be possible for extraction. In addition to the evidence collected at the scene, Kristen's belongings that were left behind at Jim's trailer were as follows. A tan-colored purse holding the contents of personal items and cosmetics, an address book, a suitcase with clothing, her airline ticket, four pairs of shoes, jewelry, a curling iron, a book, and a bathing suit. Back home in Minnesota, a great loss was felt in the town of Burnsville and beyond. Grief-stricken members of Kristen's family, her friends, and classmates arrived at her funeral. It was surreal. Here's Phil Riedel. He was Kristen's boyfriend in high school. I remember hearing about it, and then, and then that uh, myself, and then George Kennedy, the guy was, they introduced me to Kristen in high school. We were asked to be pallbearers, which... That whole part kind of freaked me out a little bit, especially when once you get to the church and you actually do it. That's a bit. Yeah, I don't know how to explain that. But uh, yeah, I was like, I, I remember when I heard it, I'm like, I'm like, why? I just don't get it. Why would somebody do that? So, yeah, very sad. Shannon thinks she was probably in shock when she first heard the news from her family. Here, she also talks about the funeral. Her, her, mom and da- her mom and dad had come and wanted a couple of us who were close to her to get up and say something. And 
they had a bunch of her personal effects. And they said, you know, if you want to pick something and, you know, talk about it or the whatever means the most to you with her. And so I took her horse's bridle. And gosh, I remember the church was huge, huge. And it was packed. The family's priest read the homily, echoing all the qualities that Kristen had and how her life had touched others. Her love of horses and her dog. How if you met Kristen, she was your friend, and you would sit down and talk to her for hours. How she was the type of person you'd go to if you needed advice. And while she liked to be a part of a crowd, she wasn't a follower. She was independent, stubborn, and always late. All the attendees of the funeral received a handout. Included in it were poems Kristen had written. In one poem, Kristen wrote at age 13, I'd like to sail the ocean. I'd like to sail the sea. But before I sail anywhere, I must learn to be free. Kristen was buried at St. Thomas Cemetery in Minnesota. Her tombstone is heart-shaped and includes her photo with a description that says, daughter of Michael and Phyllis, sister of Kyle. Kristen's murder had a profound effect on the family and on her parents' relationship. Phyllis and Mike dealt with a lot of stress in their marriage as a result. Phyllis was unable to let go, while Mike, completely grief-stricken, believed that at some point they needed to move on. In another blow to the family, he died of cancer in 1993 at the age of 50. Now, 37 and a half years later, Phyllis still hasn't had any peace. No arrests, no justice. Early on, the investigative team ruled out the notion that anyone Kristen had been with in Jim's trailer that night could be involved. In fact, the police were pretty certain that the killer didn't even live in Ovid, but was someone who had just happened upon Kristen that night, a crime of opportunity. So that narrows the investigation a bit, right? Eliminates about 665 people as suspects and eases any tension with Ovid residents that there may be a killer in their community. Well, not necessarily. We're just getting started here. There's a lot more to unravel. What darkness was hiding in that tiny New York community? Was this a crime of opportunity or something more sinister? What possible motive did anyone have to murder this vibrant young woman from out of town? Did it have anything to do with something she saw, heard, or was it connected to an FBI agent that Kristen had been in contact with? Coming up next on Method and Madness. This sleepy little town wasn't sleeping. We just don't know what she found out, what she heard. Coming up on part two of Kristen's story, we're taking a road trip to Ovid, New York, just a few days after what would have been Kristen's 58th birthday. I'll see the trailer where she was staying and walk the road she walked the night that she was killed. And we'll take a deeper look into what was going on in that tiny community in 1985 who Kristen had spent her time with, their connections in Florida, 
and what private investigators have uncovered. Here's today's call to action. Kristen's case can be solved. There's a petition online to get the DNA in Kristen's case tested. Please sign. If you have any information about Kristen's case and want to submit a tip, please do so by contacting Detective Peter McAdden of the New York State Police. Check the show notes for more details. You can also share this episode and Kristen's story on social media. There is power in numbers, and someone knows something. To get more information about Kristen's case, visit my friends at Uncovered.com and make sure to join the Facebook group, Justice for Kristen O'Connell. So many people helped make this episode and miniseries possible. Thank you to Courtney Fenner, Jolyn Rice, Christopher Pavlik, Noel Hotchkiss, Preston Felton, the anonymous residents of Ovid, Barbara Bear, Shannon Harris, Phil Riedel, and of course, Phyllis O'Connell. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Mo and Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text hello to 741 741.